Once again, good morning, friends. During our morning devotions, our worship time in the, before the real day gets started, we've been going through a study of the book of Acts. Hopefully everyone here is aware of that at this point. If you've somehow missed it, I'm so sorry. But that's what our topic has been. That's what our course of study has been. And as I mentioned on Dateline, I like individual sermons, but adding to a collective larger framework. And as we've been working through the book of Acts, you know, roughly chronologically, but not dogmatically so, we've been pulling out themes and topics, subjects or areas of interest that were not only interesting historically in the book of Acts, but also applicable to our day today as we seek to be God's people in these last days. Basically, we're looking for first-generation lessons, lessons for last-generation believers. On day one, we looked at the genuine essence of conversion. It's not only convincing or convicting, but it's a change, it's a yielding of the self to apply what you've been heard and that, what you've been hearing, and that is conversion. Next day, we looked at discipleship. That once you come to Christ, you stay with Christ through a daily study of His Word and a continual practice of the principles of His Word. And it might take some cutting. It might take some pointed change. It might take some discipline to become a disciple. But that's what the Word calls for. The next day we looked at the idea of benevolence. Doing good for others as an evidence of Christian character being developed within us. There is a spirit of liberality and free giving and, and generosity for others in their time of need in the early church. And we need to see a revival of that in the last day church. We need to all be medical missionaries in the sense of being doing good for others just because the Lord, the love of God, as Paul would say, compels us. Then we looked at soul winning. The church of Antioch was built on lay members going out and spreading the word of God, and this work will not be finished until the lay members join with the church workers, and we each become ministers and messengers of God's three angels' messages in these last days. And then yesterday we looked at how, to dis how the early church leaders worked through some very difficult doctrinal issues. In Acts chapter 15, we saw the issue of circumcision and the Judaizers and how the spirit of prophecy and a study of God's word and the order of the church helped resolve what in any other way would seem insurmountable. But God is good. He's greater than our problems and we can trust him if we follow his word and keep his ways. This morning's message is entitled, Cutting Timothy. After Acts chapter 15, we run headlong into Acts chapter 16, and that's where our study comes from today. But before we do any study of God's Word, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again we come to you this morning so thankful for life at all, and Lord, on this day of our lives, we get to be here at camp meeting, together in the morning, studying your Word and expecting great things, for you are indeed a great God. Lord, I would ask right now that you would bless our time together, that you would forgive my sins or any other sins here that represent it, that you would let us be clean and have pure minds and sharp thinking and soft hearts to receive what your word has for us today. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 16, let's go there together if we would. We've outlined how there was a struggle leading up to this point in our study so far, that there was a group of people who would always roam around and, and hassle and heckle and even hunt the Apostle Paul, and even Peter got uh, heckled from the crowd for his work among the Gentiles, and 
Acts chapter 15 was the culmination of those disputes. And we studied that yesterday. So now we're going to move past that and go to Acts chapter 16. And it opens rather abruptly with our introduction to a young man named Timothy. Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. It says behold in the sense of like, oh, and look, there was Timothy. And you could get the impression because his name has not been mentioned anywhere in the book of Acts and all of a sudden, oh, there's Timothy. Where did this guy come from? Who is he? Well, it tells us a little bit about him right there in verse 2. He was the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. So you understand that he grew up in a kind of a mixed household, a split home, where there were different ideas and philosophies and religious thought. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek, but at some point her, his mother converted, so she's a Christian Jew with a Greek father. An interesting mix, I would imagine. It says he was, verse, verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. It says, and Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they de delivered the de to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. We have five verses introducing us to Timothy. And one of the things that's striking to me at this is by verse 3, he circumcised. It's a very abrupt entrance, and right away we know very little about him. Paul wants to take him, has him circumcised, and they're off and going. Doesn't seem like that groundbreaking of a story. But let's go back and study out Timothy, his history with Paul, and what they're doing in Acts chapter 16. First of all, let's note that when we add this testimony of the spirit of prophecy in with the scripture record, we find out that this is not the first encounter that Paul has had with young Timothy. Okay? We need to go back to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We mentioned this encounter yesterday, but we're going to review it today and add a little depth. Acts chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 19. Here, this is where Paul was facing the idolatry at Lystra, and he starts preaching away and gets himself into a bit of trouble. And it says then in verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Now, if you go back in the history even further, as we did yesterday, we saw that Paul had already had issues at Iconium and at Antioch from these Jews who wanted to disrupt and disturb and discourage those who were listening to his message. And now they're hunting him even farther as he comes here to Lystra. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be what? Dead. Now, I know this is a kind of common sense thing, but you don't stone someone, and it, it, stoning was not a redemptive form of discipline. Right? It's not like a timeout, sit in the corner, a little spanking. It is capital punishment, right? Stoning to death is not something you die accident. Stoning to death is the whole purpose of the thing, right? So they stoned him, and apparently their work was effective enough that the stone Urs thought the stone E had died. 
Supposing him to be dead, they drag him outside the city. So you can imagine the condition of Paul's body at this point. You know, later Paul would reflect on his um, experiences for the gospel and his, and his uh, uh, sufferings for the cause of Christ, and he would list off stoned and beaten and shipwrecked. I mean, he went through a lot. And this was one of those toughest of occasions. He was beaten literally to the point of death. They drag him out of the city, supposing him to be dead, and then automatically we see in verse 20, however... When the disciples gathered around him, now I don't know the exact sequence, but my mind races. What would the chronology of this event be like? He's preaching. People are stirred up against him. They stone him nearly to death, or basically to death. They drag him outside the city, dump him there, and then the disciples come around and gather around him. So there's a while there where in the city he looks to be dead. Outside the city they leave him for dead. And these disciples come around the body, I assume, to mourn and lament the tragedy they've just you know, witnessed. But it says in verse 20, However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. <laughs> My guess is that's not what they were expecting. I have yet to go to a place where I assume the person is dead when the word has gone out that the person has died, say at a viewing or a funeral, and then when I get there, they raise up. The Bible is rather understated in its shock and awe value, but I'm guessing it was not lost on these individuals what a miraculous event this was. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. And I'm certainly not trying to read too much into Scripture here, but I wonder what would happen if the disciples had not gathered around him. We're going to come to this later in our series. But friends, we need to think about and pray for each other. Why was Peter released from prison the night before his execution? Because they were praying for him. Here the disciples had a concern for their brother. They gather around him, and in that moment... When they had gathered around him, he raises up. And went into the city. We noted this yesterday. I don't know if I have that kind of courage. If there was a city that I barely escaped from with my life, had to be miraculously restored, I don't know the first thing I would do would go back into the city. But Paul is made of different stuff, isn't he? Went back into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, I think this would leave an impression on anyone who witnessed this event, but especially on a young man who might have been in the crowd of disciples that day. Verse, uh, uh, in Acts of the Apostles, page 184, commenting on this particular instance, the pen of inspiration writes, among those who had been converted at Lystra, and who were eyewitnesses of the sufferings of Paul, was one who would afterward become a prominent worker for Christ and who was to share with the apostle the trials and the joys of pioneer service in difficult fields. This was a young man named Timothy. When Paul was dragged out of the city, this youthful disciple was among the number who took their stand beside his apparently lifeless body and who saw him arise bruised and covered with blood, but with praises upon his lips because he had been permitted to suffer for the sake of Christ. Do you think that inspired a young man? 
Ooh, I want to be like Paul. This man takes a licking and keeps on ticking, right? He's bruised and bloodied, and the first thing he comes up is, let's do it again. Praising the Lord. This is the quintessential ministry. I'm suffering for Christ. Amen. That had to stick in Timothy's mind. So when we go back to Acts chapter 16, only two chapters later, when we read in verse 1, then he came to Derby and Lystra. You know, he's gone to Jerusalem for this meeting. Now he's returning and he goes right back on the circuit from a reciprocal course, right? He goes right back where he came from and is Lystra again. Then he came to Derby and Lystra and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. The son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Apparently, in the intervening time, he had, he had already been a faithful disciple in his youth already, but now he's well spoken of in Lystra and Iconium. He's kind of got a bit of a name for himself and faithfulness right there in his local area. And so the behold is not an indication of surprise, like, oh, there's a young kid named... They've already seen each other before. Now, I don't know if Paul knew him or remembered him. I don't know about that, but I can guarantee you Timothy remembered Paul. And he comes back through town, and I believe the behold was not an in, is not an indication of surprise that Timothy was there, because this is his hometown. Rather, Paul is relieved to note the strength of his faith and life in Christ. Behold, Timothy, young man, you're still here. Page 202 of Acts of the Apostles, we read this. Here Paul again met Timothy who had witnessed the sufferings at the close of his first visit to Lystra, and upon whose mind the impression that made had deepened with the passing of time. Now, sometimes our religious instincts and our uh, uh, experiences kind of fade with the passage of time, right? Oh, I was committed then, but then I kind of slipped away. But not for Timothy. What he had witnessed with Paul only strengthened and deepened over time. So when Paul came back around, he is set in stone. until he was convinced that it was his duty to give himself fully to the work of the ministry. His heart was knit with the heart of Paul, and he longed to share the apostles' labors by assisting as the way might open. Basically, I don't know if he puts himself forth or Paul put, calls him forward, but there's a recognition that Timothy is ready to go on the mission work. Now, I'm not even close to the appeal point of this message, but let me tell you something, friends. We need to hear more mission stories for our young people to be inspired by. There was a time in the Seventh-day Adventist church when you'd hear mission spotlight, mission outreach, mission stories, mission testimonies, and there was a sense of mission. Young people would listen to that instead of the television, and they would be inspired. Friends, there are mission fields in our world today, and we need faithful young people. And I'd even take faithful old people at this point. But we need faithful people who are willing to take a hit for Jesus Christ. Willing to give up something. This young man listened, in fact, witnessed the real-life missionary zeal of the Apostle Paul and the sufferings that came with it. Instead of being deterred, he was inspired to go forward. So we continue reading in Acts chapter 16, again verse 3. 
Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now again, taken alone, this passage isn't particularly surprising. After all, they were going to encounter a lot of Jews, and it would make sense that they didn't want any major distractions to always have to be explaining why he was taking this uncircumcised young man along with him, so they just went ahead and had him circumcised. What makes Acts chapter 16, verse 3 particularly interesting, at least to me, is Acts chapter 16, verse 4. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. Do you catch at all the irony there? Hmm. Once we understand what was on that decree that their mission was to carry around to the Gentile converts, right? The rather simple plot that we've seen here in Acts chapter 16, they meet together, I want to go on the journey, let's get you circumcised and go, takes on a new depth. It, when we were looking at that Acts chapter 14 experience, that was before the Acts chapter 15 Jerusalem council, right? A great many of the people at that point, including a number of church leaders and likely some of the apostles, maintained that circumcision was a prerequisite to salvation. It was a mandatory thing to be saved in God's kingdom. Yet by the time Timothy meets Paul again in Acts chapter 16, there's a new understanding of what conditions are necessary for salvation. And circumcision was specifically removed from that list. The document Paul and Timothy carried to the Gentile world was the very document that gave Timothy the right not to be circumcised. So why did he do it? I mean, you can imagine here. We, we chronicled this yesterday, how Paul was heckled and hunted for his contention that you don't have to be circumcised. You can go straight to the gospel message with any man, woman, or child anywhere in the world. and They can accept by faith the righteousness of Christ. And you don't have to become ceremonially Jewish. Those things were, were done away with or fulfilled in Christ. And it was a hard-fought battle. Peter and Paul basically spoke to this issue, and even Peter himself, you recall, had to be brought to it by the Holy Spirit. We saw that there was no small dispute. It was a big fight. It was a theological battle. But the Holy Spirit prevailed, and at the end of the day, you could say that Paul's position, if you want to use the, the lingo, won. He prevailed. Though it was the minority position, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a study of the Bible and an understanding of the brethren, they were molded together in one mind and they wrote a letter that said, here's what was required and circumcision was specifically left off the list. And Paul comes to young Timothy. He says, you would be a great missionary. And he says, I've always wanted to be a missionary ever since I saw you die and come back to life. Let's go. He says, good idea. Before we go, let's get you circumcised real quick. How's that? What's the nature of our, Oh, we need to go tell people not to, they don't have to be circumcised. He's like, yeah, let's go. He's like, yeah, real quick, let's circumcise you then. 
you can, I mean, my mind goes this far. It's like, you can imagine him. Here, you hold this decree. While I do this work, and then we'll go on together. And on the decree, it says he doesn't have to do what he's doing. Why did he do it? Acts of the Apostles, page 204. As a precautionary measure, Paul wisely advised Timothy to be circumcised. Not that God required it, but in order to remove from the minds of the Jews that which might be an objection to Timothy's ministration. Listen to the language. Paul wisely advised. He didn't command. He advised. And it was not because God required it. It wasn't a requirement of God, and it wasn't even a requirement of Paul. It was a recommendation. It was an advisement. But Timothy could decline. She goes on to explain, in his work, Paul was to journey from city to city in many lands, and often he would have opportunity to preach Christ in Jewish synagogues as well as in other places of assembly. If it should be known that one of his companions in labor was uncircumcised, his work might be greatly hindered by the prejudice and bigotry of the Jews. Everywhere the apostle met determined opposition and severe persecution. He desired to bring his Jewish brethren as well as to the Gentiles a knowledge of the gospel, and therefore he sought, so far as was consistent with the faith, to remove every pretext for opposition. It was a pragmatic decision. He wants to be efficient and effective in his work. Yet, goes on to say, while he conceded this much to Jewish prejudice, he believed and taught circumcision or uncircumcision to be nothing and the gospel of Christ everything. He said, I want you to understand what I'm advising you to do has absolutely no inherent value to you or your relationship to God. But I want you to do it anyway. You know, the Bible describes love as that which seeks not its own, but gives itself for others. Perhaps the most famous text that speaks to this is, of course, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he, what's the next word? Gave. His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is a, a, a repeated equivalence in the Scripture that demonstrates that love gives. Love gives more than it has to. Love gives for the sake and good of others. Love sacrifices self for others. You know, in the great controversy, that is the grand issue. Besides, of course, the, the in, insurmountable gulf between creator and creation, the great difference between Christ and Satan is Christ is entirely selfless, where Satan is entirely selfish. Right? But true love gives. It doesn't take, it gives. This is why at another place it would say the law of heaven is give, give. That's it. She describes heaven as a circuit of beneficence. Where we give, where we receive to give. 
Jesus said this in John chapter 15 in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's what? Life for his friends. The ultimate demonstration of love is giving of oneself for others. Love gives. The Apostle Paul understood this core essence of love the giving of yourself for others, and developed it into one of the central themes of his writings. Let me give you some examples. If you want to go very quickly, you can look these up. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We referred to it before, but he writes an entire chapter right in between spiritual gift discussion. Chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts. But right in the middle of chapter 13, he takes a pause to talk about love. He says it's the greatest of all of these virtues. Starting with verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely. It does not seek its what? Own. So friends, if you're not seeking your own, then you are seeking for others, right? Does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. This principle of self-sacrifice runs all through the writings of Paul. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. To the right in your Bibles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2, notice what he says when he tells people to walk in love. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As, here's how we do this walking in love. As Christ also has loved us and what? Given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He says, imitate God, be like Jesus Christ, and give of yourself. That's how you walk in love, because love is the giving of yourself. Still in Ephesians, go over to chapter 5, when he describes the relation between man and woman. Notice what he says here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as who? Christ also loved the church and did what? Gave himself for her. Love gives. Go back to Galatians. Let's look at another example of this. Galatians chapter 1. I want to demonstrate that the Apostle Paul had this in mind. When he talked about love, he was talking about giving of yourself for others. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He describes Jesus Christ as the one who loved us and gave himself. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and 
gave himself for me. Do you see this theme running through his writings? Always love gives. 1 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul again says this in verse 6. We'll start with verse 5. For there is one God and one meteor between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Titus chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. Sorry, that's an incorrect text, but he says it again, I promise. (laughs) He speaks of looking for the blessed coming. No, I'm sorry, it is right there. I was incorrect when my Bible looking here. Look at Titus chapter 2. Starting with verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here it is again. Who did what? Gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself for himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. Over and over, Paul demonstrates in his writing that he understands this self-sacrificing principle of heaven that love gives. Now that we understand that, we can kind of look at his ministry and understand it a little bit better. For instance, let's go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Some examples of this self-sacrifice in his own life and experience. 1 Corinthians, we're going to go to chapter 8. We'll start with verse 1. He says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, so in the context of this love... He goes on, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Kind of like he knew that circumcision was nothing, right? We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom whom are all uh, things and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all are, are all things and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commit us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, now look at this philosophy in verse 9. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Now let's think about his argument here. Does Paul acknowledge that idols are really just stones and sticks and earthly things? Sure. He says we have this knowledge. We know there's a true God and all of that is pagan shenanigans. That's nothing. And so food is just food. 
But there's others who don't grasp that and whose weak faith would be harmed by your eating of something you're completely free to. So he says in verse 9, beware lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. And he explains what he means. For if anyone sees you have a knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Which for them would be an act of rebellion or defiance, which you understand to be nothing. But for them it would be a problem. Verse 11, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. For them, they think that's a life and death issue. And if they would be in what they understood to be rebellion, they would be acting out of their faith. He says your liberty could actually be a detriment to their salvation. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Do you understand what he's saying? It is not the act of eating the food that was offered to idols. It's the harm to the brethren that could come from your food eating, right? He said, this is the sin. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul has liberty to eat what he wants, where he wants, when he wants, according to the dictates of his own conscience, but he has to keep his own liberty in check because of the conscience of other people who might be watching. He realized there's stuff I can do, but I shouldn't do. Not because it's inherently immoral, but because of my witness and outreach to others. He was thinking of others before his own interests. Just skip over one chapter, chapter 9. Starting with one here. He has another issue come up. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Which, by the way, he did. He spent three years with Christ in Arabia. We'll come to that later. Are you not my work in the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we, know, do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only uh, Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? So he's making an argument that he should be paid for his ministry, right? And he makes a pretty solid case. He goes on to say, verse 8, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. He's like, you even pay animals from their work. That's what the law of God says. Come on now. Is it oxen God is concerned about, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? He makes a very strong case that he has earned, rightfully so, a paycheck. Why, were we, why do we know that Paul is the tent maker all the time? They weren't paying him. 
And he says, I have every right to demand what's coming to me. But look at the next word. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. He goes on to make the case even more forcibly. In the next chapter, chapter 10, he kind of outlines this philosophy. Look at verse 24. The 23, 24. All things are, what's the word? Lawful for me, but not all things are what? Helpful. Friends, let me challenge you with this. In our Christian walk, there are things that are perfectly legitimate for you to do, but we should still sacrifice them for the sake of God. We're going to be coming to an appeal in a minute, but I want to challenge you. Oftentimes we talk about things we need to give up for the Lord, and we talk about immoral things, or unethical things, or clearly outlined sinful practices that need to be cut out of our life. You know, we talk about giving up alcohol or caffeine or tobacco or, or, or pornography or gambling or whatever the vice might be that you struggle with. We should give up those bad things, but there are even good things that you have every right to, but for the sake of the gospel, we should sacrifice even more. We have a lot of sermons that challenge you to give up bad things. I'm going to challenge you to give up good things. Perfectly morally helpful things. We need a spirit of self-sacrifice if we're going to finish this work. All things are lawful for me, and all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. So what does it say in verse 24? Let no one seek what? His own. Where did we see? Seeks not its own. 1 Corinthians 13, love. Right? What he's describing here is the manifestation of genuine Christian love. And friends, love for Jesus Christ means giving up bad things, but sometimes love for others means up giving up even good things. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Of course, Paul's spirit of sacrifice was merely a shadow or a reflection of the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What example did Jesus lay for us? Friends, when he came down to this earth, did he give up bad things or did he give up good things? He gave up the greatest things of all, right? And it talks about how he, it had cost him something. It cost heaven something to send Jesus. The same Apostle Paul would speak of the sacrifice in Christ in, in monetary terms even. Acts chapter 2, verse 28, Paul describes the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It cost him. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. In Ephesians 1, 14, he refers to believers as God's, quote, purchased possession. It cost him something. Then he makes the appeal in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also, where? In Christ Jesus. And he describes what that mindset is. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Desire of Ages, page 439. Let the repenting sinner fix his eyes on the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And by beholding, he becomes changed. Gratitude springs up. The stony heart is broken. A tide of love sweeps into the soul. Looking unto Jesus, we shall be ashamed of our coldness, our lethargy, our self-seeking. We shall be willing to be anything or nothing so that we may do heart service for the Master. We shall rejoice to bear the cross after Jesus to endure trial, shame, or persecution for His dear sake. When I read that statement, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. We shall be willing to be anything or nothing. Friends, we need to be willing to do great things for God, but are we willing to do small, seemingly insignificant things for God? What if God wants you to be, from all intents and purposes, from all outward appearances, just nothing? Would you be okay with that? Would you be willing to sacrifice a life of influence and greatness for what you consider to be nothing if that's what would make the work go forward best? That's a tough call. Review and Herald, May 15, 1888. When Christ is looked to as the great exemplar, then we will seek to catch His Spirit and to imitate His example. As we see His love, His humiliation for us, the same spirit of self-denial and sacrifice for others' good will be kindled in our hearts. Beholding Jesus by the eye of faith, we shall be changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as the Spirit, as by the Spirit of the Lord. Review and Herald, November 21, 1878. Self-denial is a mark of Christianity. To offer to God gifts that have cost us something, a sacrifice that we shall ask Him to use to advance His cause on the earth, will be pleasing to Him. The Savior will accept the free will offerings of everyone, from the oldest to the youngest. Even small children may participate in this work and enjoy the privilege of bringing their little offerings. let's talk about the practical application of our study this morning. Timothy had every right to stubbornly claim his right not to be circumcised. He could assert his freedom in the gospel, his liberty in Jesus, and refuse the unnecessary and painful right of circumcision. Friends, this is the point I want to drive home. Timothy was circumcised not for his own salvation, but for the salvation of others. Have you ever noticed that? Friends, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Our good works were never designed to be our own salvation, but they were designed to be salvation for someone else. Timothy was circumcised not for his own salvation, but for the salvation of others. This study has convicted me that we need a generation of seven-day Adventists less focused on their rights as Christians and more focused on their responsibilities as Christians. Less focused on where do I stand, what do I get, what can I do? Instead, what can I do for what might I have to give up so that you can go further in your walk with Christ? How can I reach more people through self-sacrifice? I want you to think about this question. I've been wrestling with it. 
What in your life could you surrender for the sake of others? And I'm not talking about, again, giving up alcohol or, or tobacco or some other addiction. or some, Obviously, let me be clear. We should all give up bad things, right? And those are a benefit to ourselves. We give up bad things, it's good for us. That's fine. But what are some perfectly normal, healthy, good things that we have every right to indulge in, every right to participate in, every right to partake for ourselves, but we know it would be more beneficial if we sacrifice for others? What sacrifice? Perhaps even invoking personal discomfort are we willing to make to reach those who may not know the God we know? Think about time. Let's get a little bit practical, can we, this morning? Friends, I believe that the Lord wants every member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church to be giving a Bible study to someone who does not know this truth. And that takes time. Now, it's one thing, and I, I'm not taking now taking these things down at all, but you put on a health expo. Praise the Lord, by the way, for the pathways to health from those type of events. Amen? It's one thing to do that. And it usually lasts one day. Or it might take a lot of preparation and executes. Or to pass out glow tracks, we should be doing those types of things. Be sharing our faith. That's good. But what happens if you share the glow track? They come to the health expo, they read the glow track, and they say, I'd like Bible studies. First of all, we say amen, right? Second of all, we don't say, let me go get the pastor. You pull out your Google Calendar, when do we start? Now that's going to take time. But I would challenge yourself. I would challenge you to challenge yourself. Lord, help me find in my schedule time to win souls. It might take an hour or two a week. Devote, say two hours a week. You know, that's drive time to get there, the time to do the study, and the time to come back, right? Give me one Bible study and make the time. Help me sacrifice the time. You could do the same thing with the ministry of attendance we talked about the other night too, with prayer meeting and Sabbath school. Lord, help me to get up early. Help me to make this a priority. Help me to give of the time I have every right to spend on myself, but help me spend it for someone else. Volunteer for your community services and prison ministries, your health, whatever the thing is that you do, that you could be spending that time for yourself and you have every right to do so, but for the sake of the gospel, you want to sacrifice your time to win souls. How about a sacrifice of talent? Seventh-day Adventist Church, even here in Michigan, has over 20,000 members. In our ranks, there are builders, there are graphic designers, there are organizers and writers and cooks and doctors and nurses and lawyers and medical professionals and mechanics and plumbers and printers and painters and stay-at-home moms. We've all got talents that could be used somehow for Jesus Christ. And we could have every right to demand high payment for those services. But what if we could take our talent and give it to Jesus? And of course, there's the sacrifice of money. When I present this message to young people, young people have money too, by the way. Now, where they get it from, I don't know. But it's probably coming from you people. <laughs> but 
by the way, do you think that Hollywood knows that young people have money to spend? Sure enough. Clothing industry, the entertainment industry, everywhere you go to a mall, it's geared for the under 50 crowd, the under 40 crowd, the, the people that have that loose income. Friends, it's not that hard, but think of ways that I have every right to spend this on me, but instead of spending on me, I'm going to spend it on somebody else. I'm going to spend it in the cause of Christ. A little self-denial. You know, Mrs. White talked about having denial boxes in the house. Do you know that? Instead of saying, you know, I could use this, you know, I could probably do without this. Let me take the money I was just about to spend on that thing and put it in the box. Let's frame it in the modern context. Young people, or even older people, give one burrito to Jesus Christ. When you go to Taco Bell, get one less burrito that you would have eaten, but it's probably better for your health anyway. And instead, give that $1.60, whatever it is, to Jesus Christ. The little sacrifices accumulated. Get one less topping on your pizza. There's a dollar. One pair of shoes. Let the shoe go a little bit longer. Let that car go one more year. But look for those ways. In my own life, I have every right to spend my time, my talent, my money on myself. But God is calling us to a higher standard as representatives of Jesus. There's going to be a strong appeal for giving this coming weekend. And I'm not trying to step on any toes. I'm just trying to, you know, prepare the soil. But I checked with the conference treasurer. And there are over 20,000 members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the state of Michigan. Let's be honest, a good number of those aren't regular participants in the life of the church and aren't tithe and offering. Let's say that only half of that number, let's say 10,000, we're being conservative here, but say only 10,000 actually show up and have anything to do with the life and, 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 and body of Christ. And of course, there's some children in there who don't have any, let's say that only 5,000 people could have be in a position to make any sacrifice of funds or realistically could be expected to. And the number that was thrown out last weekend that we need for our upcoming personal evangelism emphasis that you're going to be hearing a lot about, friends, the Bible study reformation. They want to raise some $700,000. And that number seems astronomical for an individual home budget. But if 5,000 people in the course of one year gave $140 apiece, that's $700,000. That is completely doable in this day and age. Right? I know it sounds a little bit just wild and far-fetched to say, but we should be able to win to raise a million dollars like that. We should. And it shouldn't take, though we should have inspiring appeals, we should demonstrate the need, but it shouldn't take begging and pleading. It should come from within. We need a generation of remnant Bible-believing Christians who say, Lord, here is my time, here is my talent, and yes, here is my money. Put it to use for Jesus Christ. And that wouldn't leave you in a position of being a pauper and out on the... No, it's not. You and the Lord know your budget. You and the Lord know your situation of time and talent. You know what you have to offer. And what I'm asking you to do is to prayerfully consider, Lord, how can you use me to win more for you?
Again, it's one thing to give up something inherently harmful or morally corrupt, as we all should do. But what about the sacrifice of something that's perfectly within our rights to indulge, but for the sake of the gospel, we want to give more? That's why Timothy was cut. He could have said, "Uh uh-uh. Friend, I've got the letter right here. I know what you guys decided. I'm not doing it. But he gave anyway because he wanted to be a missionary for Jesus Christ. We need a revival of missionary zeal among God's people. And it starts right here at home. With their time, with their talent, with our money. Let me ask you a question. Has today's presentation made sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord. Now I'm going to ask you for another thing. If you want to go home, not want to, I'm sorry, if you're going to go home and covenant with the Lord, I'm not asking you to know what you're going to give up yet. You don't know yet. You haven't thought about it. But you're going to go home and you're going to think. You're going to go home and pray. You're going to evaluate your situation of time, talent, and money. And you say, Lord, how can I be cut a little bit for your work? If you're willing to make that commitment to go home and thoughtfully and prayerfully lay this before the Lord, will you stand with me this morning? Praise God. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you give us the privilege of sacrifice for your cause. Lord, we... The inspired testimony says that when Paul arose from that stoning, from that near-death beating, that he was filled with joy that he could suffer for Christ. Lord, I don't have that attitude yet, but I want it. Lord, change my heart to be more self-sacrificing, more surrendering of my rights. Lord, help us to be focused on good works, not for our own salvation, but for the salvation of the lost right here at And Lord, I want to pray for those who have said that they understood the message and have have risen to their feet to demonstrate that they want to go home and seal that commitment. Lord, in this body that you've raised up, there is time, talent, and money that could be given to your cause. Lord, convict us by your Holy Spirit's power and convert us to be more like Jesus. For we want to see Jesus soon. And we don't want anyone to be missing. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.